whenever you open up the Bible and read a passage, whether it's a verse, a chapter, or a whole book, or you're feeling ambitious and you read the whole New Testament in one sitting, you're engaging in a process of spiritual interpretation. You bring a certain number of expectations to your reading. Like, if you haven't read the passage before, you expect it to be similar to other passages in the Bible that you have read. We expect Jesus to sound Jesus-y. We expect Paul to be especially Pauline, even if we couldn't define exactly what that was exactly. We have this feeling we'll know Paul when we see Paul. And the more of the Bible you read, the more expectations you'll have, and the more often you'll encounter things that you didn't expect. For instance, what do you expect a passage from Proverbs to sound like? Go on, you can, what do you expect to hear? Call out. Wisdom, wisdom, okay, good, yeah. Wisdom, wisdom, this is excellent. The shouts of wisdom. What else? Do you expect Proverbs to be particularly long-winded? No, generally we think they're pretty short. Uh, the little aphorisms is what we generally think of, although you're, you who said wisdom are working with me here, that the first nine chapters of Proverbs are all wisdom and long-form narrative. I know until I studied it in seminary that I didn't expect Proverbs to have any narrative at all. I could quote a few of the shorter Proverbs, just as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, and so on. But the first nine chapters are advice passed from a father to a son, presenting a personified form of wisdom and folly. And both, unexpectedly, are seen as women. Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly, as they're sometimes called, present a sort of goofus and gallant story. I love bringing them up because every time I see these verses, I think of goofus and gallant. Lady Wisdom does this, Lady Folly does that. Though generally we start with what goes wrong and then fix it. The order in the Hebrew Bible tends to be the other way around. So Lady Wisdom calls you to a feast at a big banquet, and she has prepared for a big crowd. The food is all ready, the doors are wide open, even the wine has been mixed with water so that everyone can feel warm inside without losing their head. Meanwhile, Dame Folly looks to trap the passers-by into providing the feast with honey-sweet words about how stolen food and secret meals taste the best. The warning is that they look a lot alike. Notice that both Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly invite you into their homes with the simple phrase, come within my home, come with me, come in with me. That's unexpected. We expect Lady Wisdom to be good, bright, shining, and obviously not Dame Folly. Uh, whom we likewise expect to be evil, kind of cackling in the corner. <laughs> but no, it's not how you see how they act within the safety of their own home that the differences are evident. Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly provide a set of expectations for wisdom literature, of which the book of Proverbs is a part. A set of expectations that rise to the forefront with the gospel story this morning, usually called the parable of the virgins or parable of the lamp bearers or, as my Bible put it, the parable of the bridesmaids. We also bring our sets of expectations from our lives 
to this parable. What we expect a wedding to be like from our age makes a coloring, a shading of the Bible story, what we expect to read back from the Bible. But let's take a look at the original context. These bridesmaids, these young women who are likely between 11 and 21 years old, have an important task to welcome the groom and possibly the bride too. Some versions say the groom and bride. Some versions just say groom, as we heard today. Weddings were a time of joy for the entire village when everyone would come out and celebrate. There was no honeymoon trip away from home. Instead, the newlyweds would spend their engagement, usually, at the women's home, get married, and then travel to the man's home where they would be feasted for a week. It was kind of like the honeymoon trip came with them on this whole thing, and they got to celebrate in two different places if they were from two different villages. Yet, the journey from the bride's home to the groom's wasn't set in stone. Even if they were both from the same village, the procession would wind out of the cluster of homes through the fields, over mountains in some cases, before returning. You see, the point of the journey, like any road trip, was to get to know each other a little bit better. Maybe that's not the point of every road trip, but it sure is something that happens quite frequently. Couples uh, also could get, mm, let's say, distracted on their journey, as newlyweds are wont to do, and take longer returning home. So with all this winding and wending through the countryside, it was very important to have people set to welcome them home, setting out a cry to all the town that the wedding feast was beginning soon. And at night, especially, the bridesmaids were tasked with carrying torches to light the way and wake up the town. Yes, torches and not lamps. I know the bulletin cover has people carrying 1800s kind of storm lamps, but let me tell you, those didn't exist in the ancient world. Glass blowing was still a primitive art in this era, and pretty much the only place you could find glass of any sort for many, many centuries was in Venice. They were the premier glass blowers of the world. Anyway, this is before that. So instead of a lamp, they would have a stick wrapped in strips of rags and dipped in olive oil, soaked in olive oil, and then they would light it on fire, and you'd have usually a couple of torches each, one soaking while one was burning. Okay, that makes sense. You soak one, you burn one. But I got to tell you, you don't know how long this torch is going to burn. Might be 15 minutes, might be 30 minutes. It's a pretty wide range for that. The torches themselves then provide uncertainty, an expected, unexpected event. Therefore, to prepare for this uncertainty, Lady Wisdom would encourage you to have abundant extra oil, while Dame Folly would say, hey, it's okay to delay and take the extra from the ones that are prepared. You see, this story fits beautifully into the wisdom literature tradition. It may have been a parable focused simply on the importance of being prepared before Matthew grabbed it and put it into the gospel. It is, after all, unique to Matthew's gospel, and also unique to Matthew's insistence that you could miss the boat. So how can we understand this parable? Well, I'm going to do something a little unexpected today. Wisdom literature is famous for being able to be interpreted in different ways with different outcomes. You probably expect me to provide you with the one right interpretation here, and I'd love to do that, but I don't think there is one right interpretation here. Instead, I'll present to you with three different understandings. 
And you can hear which is speaking to you today. And maybe that won't be the same interpretation that you have yourself. And that's great. One of the benefits of being in community here is to share our experience, our voices with one another. So are you ready? Let's dive in. First, we have the community life interpretation. Here, it's just a fact of community life that some people are more willing to be prepared than others. This is the ants and grasshoppers parable in a different light. Since it's just expected that some people are not going to have enough, it would be right neighborly for those with more to provide for those with less. But the parable actually warns against this because not everything can be shared when there's a scarcity. Okay. If you take this with a spiritual component, as many have, you may find yourself agreeing with Scottish pastor William Barclay when, in his commentary on this passage, he writes, We cannot always be living on the spiritual capital which others have amassed. We cannot always be living on the spiritual capital which others have amassed. Sometimes, sure, okay, we can. Kids kind of coast with their parents a little bit. They have a chance to... Uh, have their parents' spiritual capital come to them while building up their own supply. But we never learn to, ex if we never, <laughs> if we never learn to accept God's grace on our own, we'll find our jars of spiritual oil running dry, our torches shining with God's light, starting to sputter in the darkness. But what if, what if the oil could have been shared? Would there have been enough to light the paths of the newlyweds? Or would they have had 10 torches burning for half the time and run out of light completely by the time they reached the feast? Or what if those who were prepared, knowing their friends were less than prepared, had stockpiled enough to share? Which are you, the prepared ones, the unprepared ones? Or maybe you're at the feast, anxiously waiting for the couple to arrive or relying on the contingent to wake you up when they do get here. Okay, context number two. This is the parable of the second coming. After all, Matthew's appendix to the story in verses 12 through 13 points us to this interpretation. Here, the foolish bridesmaids show up at the feast, finally having the oil they need. But it's too late for them. The door is closed, and the groom claims not to know them. Matthew adds, So keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. I think it's this ending that meant, uh, that, that meant it was nestled in the other parables with the keep your eyes open theme. Matthew chose this ending for it to kind of blend these other parables together into one unit. After all, uh, it does have that ending, but it doesn't really fit with the story above it. That appendix seems a little different than the story that went before it because everyone fell asleep in the story, not just the foolish ones. Everyone fell asleep. So that's a strange ending. In Matthew's day, the second coming was expected any minute. After all, Jesus had been gone from the earth for like the same length of time that he'd been here on earth. Clearly, that was enough time to regroup, come back, save everybody from the evil empire and the end of everything. But Matthew's interpretation of the parable encourages his community to be patient and, and prepared. Patient and prepared. The community should be vigilant, setting a watch perhaps, but not neglect the things that need doing, like, I don't know, having enough torches and oil to go around. In this interpretation, we are called 
to be prepared for Christ's return, bringing as much of the kingdom of heaven to earth as we can. Perhaps the newlyweds, representing Christ and the church in most traditional interpretations, are taking their sweet time returning to the place. What does that mean for us? How can we live faithfully in the meanwhile? And the third interpretation to share this morning is this, that the parable is focused on the practices of marriage itself. We often think that marriage today is either very different or very similar to marriage in the past. We don't arrange marriages anymore as a matter of course, but we still celebrate with couples as they promise their lives to each other. Today, we celebrate marriages of couples who have chosen each other since we hope that a marriage provides lifelong companionship and partnership in addition to the traditional values of fidelity and spiritual union. Marriages in the ancient world were often arranged to end conflict between warring neighbors. Whether that was a small-scale war, two neighbors that, actual neighbors, or warring countries that were trying to end their wars. Marriage was a way to peace. And today, the prevalence of self-chosen, interracial, intercultural, and interreligious marriages shows that peace through understanding is still a powerful component of marriage. You may be surprised to learn that the practices of celebrating a wedding haven't changed all that much either. Sure, in the Western world, the tendency is to feast for an evening rather than a week, but weddings still gather the communities of the couple in a festive time. In the Middle East, the practices of lighting the path of newlyweds continues much unchanged to this day, though there are still more Western practices that have made their way in too. In the beginning of the 20th century, J. Alexander Findlay described a wedding feast that was nearly unchanged from that described in the Bible. That's pretty cool. The focal point of the wedding, though, is the week-long wedding feast a time of partying and celebration that echoes the Jewish understanding of the Messianic banquet, a great feast that everyone shares with God and the Messiah. At the communion table, we too remember the great celebration that awaits, even as we also remember somberly the last time that Jesus ate with his disciples. Expected, unexpected, coming together at the communion table too. In this last interpretation of the parable, though, more questions arise. Who are these bridesmaids anyway? Aren't they friends and relatives of the bride and groom? They're people who are first invited to the party, certainly. So when the groom says at the end of the story that he doesn't know the ones that are late, that's kind of a big slap in the face. These are people who were invited to light the way and who didn't bother to prepare properly. Hmm. But when the party ends... What happens next? Does everyone go back to being friends? Or does it take time to build up that trust, that relationship again? Missing the party is certainly not a lot of fun. But you definitely don't want to miss out on that relationship. Okay, did any of these resonate with you? Maybe you have some interpretations of this parable yourself. That's great. The Holy Spirit works through us all, making wise the simple and adding our voices to the conversation that stretches back to the beginning of wisdom literature. For your voice is the unexpected expected in interpreting scripture through blending your context and the ancient world. Now, may God fill your torch with the oil of faith. 
May the love of Jesus Christ prepare you to be in relationship with the Holy One for more than a lifelong commitment. And may the light of the Holy Spirit shine from you, guiding others to the wedding feast that is the joy of knowing God. Amen.